Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher of a class of teenage boys at Mount Vernon Congregational Church in Boston. One Sunday, the pastor of the church brought a a young man, a boy, into his class. Mr. Kimball, the teacher, discerned that this young fellow had a real interest in the Bible. So one afternoon, Kimball went to the shoe store where this young man was working, and he found him in the back of the room. Kimball said, I went up to him at once, and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I afterwards felt was a very weak plea for Christ. As a result of that, D.L. Moody came to know the Lord as his Savior. D.L. Moody became a world-renowned evangelist. He often spoke to audiences of 10 to 20,000 people. One day, he was preaching in a little chapel in the British Isles. It was pastored by a young man named Frederick Brotherton Meyer. And that message that D.L. Moody preached in Meyer's church changed Pastor Meyer's ministry, inspired him to become an evangelist like Moody. And over the years, F.B. Meyer came to America. He also was reaching thousands for Christ. He was speaking in Northfield, Massachusetts. A young preacher heard Meyer say this, If you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? That's a good question. That remark led J. Wilbur Chapman to respond to the call of God on his life. And Chapman went on to become one of the most effective evangelists of his time. There was a volunteer by the name of Billy Sunday. He helped set up chairs for Chapman's crusades. Eventually, he took over his ministry, and Billy Sunday became one of the most dynamic evangelists, reaching many for Christ. Inspired by a 1924 Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was a group of Christians who dedicated themselves to reaching the city for Christ. The group invited another evangelist, Mordecai Ham, to come and to hold a series of evangelistic meetings in 1932. And during those meetings, a 16-year-old young man named Billy Graham committed his life to Christ. You know, none of us live our lives in isolation. We never know what impact our lives can have. And you don't have to be a preacher or an evangelist to impact people for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every life touches other lives for good or ill. And our lives can have a generational impact for the gospel and for our Lord. That's one of the values of being part of a local church because we have the opportunity to impact one another in our walk together to be good disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible gives us many examples of people who live for God's glory and made an impact with their life. And one of those we're looking at this morning is John the Baptist. Now, for some who may not be uh, familiar with uh, the Bible, we are in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written by John the Apostle. 
He was one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in these early chapters, John the Apostle tells us about John the Baptist. Though they're both named John, they, they are different people. And sometimes you can kind of get confused. And sometimes John the Apostle identifies that it's John the Baptist. And other times within the context, he simply says John. So hopefully that will be helpful as we move down through this section of Scripture. Now, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, at the end of his um, Gospel, he tells us the purpose for his Gospel in John 20, 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John the Apostle wrote the Gospel to present Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, you and I can have our sins forgiven and gain eternal life simply by trusting in Christ and his work on the cross. So John, the apostle, begins to bring forth witnesses in his gospel to testify of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah of Israel, is indeed the Son of God. And so John, the apostle, begins with John the Baptist. And he's one of the most important individuals in the New Testament. He is mentioned, his name is mentioned 89 times in the New Testament. What's interesting is John the Baptist and Jesus were related. They were related through John the Baptist's mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 36. And God had a very distinct purpose for John the Baptist's life. Now, you don't have to be John the Baptist. You don't have to be John the Apostle. You don't have to be an evangelist or a preacher. If you're a born-again Christian, I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, God has a purpose for your life. And we'll see a general purpose that we all have as disciples of Jesus. But I also believe God has a distinct purpose for your life. So who is this John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. When I say forerunner, I mean he came before Jesus, and he came for a very specific reason. Now, I said he was very important, and Jesus says that himself. In Luke 7, 28, Jesus said of him, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now, when you study the scripture, what you discover is, it's pretty amazing, there had not been a prophet in Israel for over four centuries until John the Baptist was born and came on the scene. We know that his birth was announced by the angel Gabriel. His father, Zechariah, was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And one time when it was his turn to serve in the temple, he had a vision and it was Gabriel from heaven. And Gabriel announced to John the Baptist that though he and his wife were past the age of childbearing, they would indeed have a son and they would call his name John. The last recorded visitation of an angel to men was some in the time of Zechariah the prophet 500 years earlier. So 400 years from a prophet, 500 years from an angelic visitation, and this all centers on this man named John the Baptist. Now, we're reading backwards because 
the Gospels were written after the fact, so we're, we're getting this information. But if you were living in Israel at the time that John the Baptist began his ministry, he literally burst onto the scene, seemingly from out of nowhere. And he came with a very powerful message. In Mark chapter 1, verse 6, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, God did not send John into Jerusalem or into the temple. He was out in the wilderness of Judea. He was identifying himself with the poor people of that area of Israel. Now, we know at this time in Israel, there was a sense of expectation that the Messiah was coming on the scene soon. I believe partly because of the prophecies of Daniel that they knew it was about time that the Messiah would show up. Luke 3.15 says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, this is what made the, the people of Israel so culpable that they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Because there was this expectation that the Messiah was coming and very soon, but they would not believe, for the most part, that Jesus was their Messiah. So here you have John. He bursts on the scene. He's baptizing people. They're coming out of Jerusalem and out of Judea, which is that area where Jerusalem is, the southern part of Israel at the time. And so you've got these religious authorities. They're more a little, really, in a sense, political than religious, these spiritual leaders in Jerusalem. And they're wondering what's going on. So the religious authorities in Jerusalem sent a delegation to investigate John. And you'll notice that in verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, if you're studying the gospel of John, you will find out that John the apostle, often when he uses the term the Jews, he's talking about the religious establishment in Israel the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and such. Now, their goal certainly was to protect Israel from any false messiahs. The problem was when the true messiah showed up, they rejected him, and not just rejected him, they opposed him. They opposed him so much, it eventually led to Jesus' crucifixion. So Luke chapter 3, verse 7 says, literally, multitudes were coming out to hear John the Baptist and were being baptized and confessing their sins. You remember when you get into the Gospels, it talks about Jesus, how he preached to multitudes. Well, before that, here's John the Baptist. And many of them are coming out of Jerusalem, out of Judea. They're going out into the wilderness to listen to this guy who's dressed kind of weird, and he's preaching this powerful message. No wonder the religious authorities in Israel we're wondering, who is this individual? He's going to threaten our influence over the people of Israel. That's what they were more concerned about than anything. 
So they sent a delegation to check John out. Verse 19, they wanted to know his true identity. Who are you? So they asked him some questions. First of all, they wanted to know, are you the Messiah? Look at verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, meaning the Messiah. Now his answer is forthright. It's very clear. There's no ambiguity here. I'm not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. He didn't come to try to usurp Jesus' ministry. His purpose wasn't to draw crowds around him and focus on him. It was to prepare the nation of Israel for their Messiah. You know, truth is one of the themes of the Gospel of John. And we heard read for us, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So they said, are you the Messiah? He said, no. Secondly, they said, are you Elijah? Now, for some of us, that might seem like a strange question. But if you remember back in the Old Testament, Elijah was a great prophet. And Elijah did not die as we understand physically died. We're not sure what happened between earth and heaven, but a fiery chariot literally came down and scooped up Elijah and took him right into heaven. And so there was this thought in Israel that possibly Elijah would be resurrected or Elijah would be sent from heaven before the Messiah came. That was partly based on Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is that period we call it the tribulation, the great tribulation, where these cataclysmic events will occur on planet Earth before Christ returns. So, John was denying, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the resurrected Elijah, as some of you are expecting. Now, when John was born, or before he was born, the announcement of his birth by the angel Gabriel to Zechariah in the temple Zechariah was told this, he will go also go before him, meaning the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John was an Elijah-like mighty prophet of God. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, you had Peter, James, and John. They go up to this mount with Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured before them, and he is seen speaking with Moses and Elijah. And they were talking about the coming crucifixion. So they come down from the mountain, and it's only obvious, because remember, this is the John the Apostle writing this. He was on the mountain with Peter and James. And they're asking Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Elijah is coming and will restore, future tense. But then Jesus said to them, um, Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist, and that's from Matthew 17. So Jesus says two things. He says, Elijah... Um, is going to come in the future, but Elijah has come because John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, so it appears that another Elijah-like individual will likely appear before Jesus returns. So, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. They have one more question. Are you the prophet? 
the prophet? And they answered and said, or he answered and said, no. Now, Bible teachers disagree as to who they meant. It's possible that this is a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses' prophecy said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And many believe Jesus was the answer, a fulfillment of that prophecy. The idea here is that John, it's a threefold denial. And in, in Jewish law, you had to have three witnesses to confirm or to deny something. And so John makes it very clear. I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, and I am not the prophet. So what was the purpose of God sending John the Baptist? And what was his message? John's message was to prepare the hearts of the nation of Israel for the coming of Jesus, their Messiah. Now, I love the Bible. It is so factual and historical, but it, it's so right down to earth. So imagine this delegation comes, and they, they already think that, that, that maybe he's the Messiah, or maybe he's Elijah, or maybe he's the prophet. And so John the Baptist clearly says, no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm none of those. So verse 22, then they said to him, who are you? that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So at this point, the delegation is really frustrated. We've got to go back and report to our leaders in Jerusalem, and we, we still don't know who you are. And so John answers them with a quote from Isaiah. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, which is a passage about the coming Messiah and the forerunner of the Messiah. The idea of preparing a highway is when kings often would travel and, and through rough country, they would have servants go ahead of them, and they would clear out the way, any debris or whatever, to make the pathway smooth, as it were. And that's the imagery that Isaiah was using here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all state that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So Matthew 3 says, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we get other information about John, but I think the clearest statement of John's message, the gist of his message, you'll find that over in chapter 3 of John's gospel, just a couple pages over. And in chapter 3 and in verse 36, the last verse in chapter 3 he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John's message was very clear. And he was teaching that Jesus is the Messiah, not just the Messiah, the Son of God. And I'm here to prepare the way for your Messiah. You need to understand who he is. You need to recognize if you have Christ, you have life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. And the wrath of God abides on you. And in the epistles, Paul in particular explains exactly what that means. We're all born sinners and we all sin. So we are all automatically under the condemnation of a holy God. And you can't do enough good works. You can't give enough. You can't pray enough. You can't be good enough that God will accept you into heaven on your own merits. Because our righteousness are like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God righteous God. So God came up with this wondrous plan of salvation where he sends his own son. He's the perfect son of God, a human but yet God. 
and lives a perfect life. So he's the perfect sacrifice. The gospel says he died for our sin, not his sin. And Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel. Christ died for your sin, was buried and rose again. And so John is preaching this message of salvation. So his ministry was preaching and baptizing. Verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So the rite of baptism did express some kind of spiritual authority. And they were still wondering, okay, if you're none of these three, and they didn't get the, the passage from Isaiah, so why are you baptizing? Who gives you this basically authority um, to do this? And so these Pharisees were defenders of legalistic Judaism Legalistic religion because Judaism had descended into, instead of, you know, living by faith and like Abraham did, and Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness, it says in Genesis, they had gotten into a series of works and of religious duties. They thought they could earn their way to heaven. And so they would be particularly interested in examining the credentials of some new preacher, prophet, who shows up on the scene. And what does John do? John again points them to Jesus. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but here stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. What was John's purpose? What was John's ministry to point people to Jesus? Um, guess what? If you're a born-again Christian, that's part of your purpose. That's part of our ministry. Our ministry is to point people to Jesus. We can't save anybody, but we can lead them to the Savior. Why do you think the Santos are leaving what they know and going into a country dominated in, in, in many ways by certain religions? And why are they doing that? even putting themselves in harm's way because they want to take the gospel to people who do not know. Well, here's John baptizing, and there's some confusion about this. Is John's baptism the same as what we do today, what we call believer's baptism? And why did Jesus need to be baptized by John? Because he was. Well, John's baptism is not the same as believer's baptism. Matthew 3, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, you have to understand, again, the Greek word, the reason we do immersion here is because that's what the word baptize means. Uh, it, doesn't, it, it, it means to immerse, to place into. And it beautifully pictures the death, burial, resurrection of an, of an individual. So it it identifies the Christian with Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and it symbolizes our spiritual uh, baptism and that we are raised to newness of life. But the Jews didn't baptize except Gentiles. They would baptize Gentiles who were proselytes of the gate who wanted to come in and worship the God of Israel. And so the fact that Jews were submitting to baptism was incredibly significant because, in effect, they were saying, my national heritage, the fact that I'm descended from Abraham, is not a guarantee 
that I'm going to get into the kingdom. And remember, then Jesus came along preaching, you must be born again, or you won't see or you won't enter the kingdom. So they were baptizing Jews, and it's not the same as our baptism. This was a public act showing their repentance. They came confessing their sins. And the actual act of baptism didn't save them, just like our baptism doesn't save anybody. They were coming as a public display that they were repenting of their sins, confessing their sins. It was an outward sign of an inward spiritual work. And so Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and John says, no, John the Baptist, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness in Matthew 3. Why? And I think this is so significant. You see, Jesus had no sin. He needed no repentance. He had no sins to confess. He was baptized by John to identify himself with sinners. When we get baptized, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus because of what he's done for us. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so in verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. And that wasn't just rhetoric. That wasn't false humility. John the Baptist actually meant that. He knew who Jesus was. He, he didn't know for sure which one was the Messiah, but when he was, Jesus was baptized and he saw a dove descending, the Father had told him, this is the identifying mark, and then he knew that his cousin was indeed the coming Messiah. And John didn't respond to the temptation to make it all about him. You know, we preachers and uh, we who are in spiritual leadership or even those of us who teach or whatever, even as individual believers, so many times we fall into the trap that it's all about me. You know, I'm the center of, of my universe. You know, it's all about me. No, it's all about Jesus. And if we remember it's all about Jesus, it's going to help us to live our lives like John did, pointing men to Jesus. So the next day, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, we're so familiar with the image of the lamb, and though they did have the sacrificial system, yet still John is the only gospel writer who continues to use this imagery. In verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him, and I love this, and they followed Jesus. And they followed Jesus. Whose life are we speaking into? Whose life can we make an impact? If we're we have family, then certainly our children, certainly our grandchildren, certainly our relatives. But beyond that, who is there that God has put in our vision, God has put in our life, that we can point them to Jesus? You know, John gave his life for his Savior. We discover in Matthew 14 that Herod, the Herod that was reigning at that time, was Herod Antipas. And Herod, 
He got infatuated with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. So they went off and eloped together, even though they were both married. John the Baptist, a preacher of righteousness, confronted Herod about his sin. Herod got so angry, he put John in prison. Then one day, Herod's birthday came about, and the daughter of Herodias danced before Herod, and probably in a drunken stupor, he promised her basically anything. So she goes back to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And this wicked woman was so bitter because John the Baptist had confronted her sin and shows the guilty conscience. She told her daughter, you asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And that's what she asked for. And so they took John and beheaded him and brought his head to these wicked people on a platter. But we know in the strange providence of God that God had fulfilled John the Baptist's purpose for his life. And so now it was God's time to remove John off the scene and to bring focus upon Jesus. You know, Sally and I have been talking about we're married for 51 years. 51 years. And the folks told me in Sunday school they're like 61 or 62, or maybe it was 80. I can't remember. But about 10 or 11 years more than us. And... Um, it just seems like yesterday. In Psalm 90, Moses says a thousand years in God's sight is like yesterday when it's past. And so 51 years of marriage is like yesterday when it's past. And many of you who are a little older like us, you, you get that. When you're young, you think you're going to live forever. Well, you ain't. Okay, but, uh, and you'll figure that out. But, you know, we are all rushing to eternity. What are we doing with our lives you know, if I'm not willing, as that, that Mordecai Ham said, if, if, if you're not willing to give your life, give everything to Jesus, are you willing to be made willing? That's a dangerous prayer to pray. Willing to be made willing. And so Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary, gives five things about John that we can apply to ourselves. John was an extraordinary person, but he was only human. John was a lamp, he was not the light. Jesus is the light. John was a voice, but he was not the word. Jesus is the word. John was useful, but he was not indispensable. And John was effective, but he remained humble. John's purpose was to transition spiritual leadership from himself to Jesus. And we, like John the Baptist, have the privilege to point people to Jesus with our life and with our testimony. Time is fleeting. We do not know when Jesus will return. We do not know how long we have ourselves. God has a purpose for our life. And just like John the Baptist, when that purpose is over, God calls us home, and that'll be one great day. But in the meantime, what are we doing with the moments, the minutes, the hours, the days, the months, the years that God has given us to serve him and to point people to Jesus Christ.